Hi, friends. I'm Renee. I'm Diana. And I'm KJ. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Hello, Space Bees. Uh, I'm joined today with two guest hosts, Diana and KJ. They are very kindly helping me cover Anna's hiatus. Anna's doing good, by the way. She's resting and recovering from our long international nightmare. (laughs) To start us off, we're going to talk about some good stuff that's happened in the world. Diana, do you want to go first? Sure. Some good stuff that has happened in the world for me is that Canada designated the Proud Boys as terrorists, which I (laughs) greatly appreciate because Canada has a lot to answer for in giving the world Gavin McInnes. And so this is a step in the right direction. I continue to wonder how long it's going to take for... Uh, the United States to be like, mm, you look kind of terroristy. We're going to classify you that way because it hasn't happened yet. Although there was something that came out recently about white supremacist terrorist groups. I don't remember if they use the word terrorist, but there was some word out of mm-hmm. the administration about how they're going to start taking this more seriously. I will cross my fingers and hope for the best, but also be very skeptical until I see actual change. <laughs> Uh, Okay, KJ, how about you? What is your one good thing? I don't know if it's a good thing, but it was a a useful thing. And that's the one of the big things that's come out of the pandemic for me is that my office is closing. And I'm not losing my job. We're being either offered a place in another nearby office or work continuing to work from home. But I went into the office for the first time since uh, I think last time I was in there was in like July to pick up a piece of equipment and bring stuff home and put stuff in boxes. And it was a good sort of closure moment because it's been sort of hanging over my head for a while that this was the thing that needed to happen. Probably, I probably won't start working in the new office until July at the earliest, but it was sort of nice to have that closure, that moment of, okay, I am now leaving this place and I won't come back to it. As you've communicated to me several times in the past, but I keep forgetting, you really don't like working from home. I really don't like working from home. It's not my favorite. I never thought that I would, and it turns out I don't. I look forward to the day when I can work in an office again. And the commute to the new office is shorter. I can take transit. Hopefully we're all happy to take yeah. transit in July, but we'll see. <laughs> Didn't California like just open stuff up? Yes. And in the Bay Area, things are actually getting better. The ICU numbers are going down. It's an acceptable choice up here. Things are still quite bad in Southern California. But my understanding is that people in Southern California, for the most part, weren't obeying the regulations anyway. A lot of places in California, you couldn't do things like get haircuts. And now we can. <laughs> uh, in Arkansas, haircuts never shut down because the order that the governor gave was so toothless. And even now, with that toothless order, the fascists in our state legislature are like, this is too much power for the governor. Okay, fascists. I hope once you can go to your office, it's safe to go to your office so you can get out of your house. While working from home for me is really nice, I can see how it could be not great for some people especially if you don't have a lot of space. Part of the problem is that my workspace, the the only place really for me to have an office space is also the space where I do most of my creative work. And it makes it a lot harder to make that connection, that, that jump basically from this is where I do my paid work versus this is where I write and blog and record podcasts. There's no line, which is hard. Exactly. It's harder. Fist bump out there to all the people working from home because I know it can be tough. 
Well, my one good thing, after several weeks, we finally got my mom her first uh, COVID shot. Yay! It was really stressful because the way the Arkansas Health Department was handling it, I guess they were sending doses to like these little independent pharmacies. You couldn't make the appointment over the phone. You had to use a web portal. Yes. Okay. So all the all the people sixty plus who maybe don't have reliable internet or only have like smart devices, you want to take them to a pharmacy website to sign up for an appointment. Okay. N- nothing could go wrong with that. Uh, spoiler: everything went wrong with that. It's been a struggle. But the other day they called her. They had a cancel a cancellation of some kind, which is why she got to get in. She's like, oh well, now there's an opening at four, and you can come. Whatever time is best, like, you can come at any time. Like, you can just come and walk in. And we were like, yep, let's go. <laughs> and so I took her, and she got the shot. And it was actually a super, really, really super easy process. Um, the shot didn't hurt her at all. Like, she didn't, she said it burned when it was going in a little bit. Uh, flu. She said the flu shot was worse. And she's got her next appointment. I am going into extreme detail about this because number one, yay vaccines. Number two, yay, my mother is going to get her vaccine and hopefully won't get this horrible disease. Good luck out there to kids who are trying to take their parents to get vaccinated because I know that there's not really a system in place nationally. All the states are handling it themselves. So it's just like hit or miss and it's super complicated. And that's my one good thing. Everybody get vaccinated when you get a chance. Next up, we're going to talk about like, stuff we've been reading or watching or playing. I've expanded this category because it's pandemic times and sometimes some media doesn't work for everybody. Dana, what have you been up to media-wise recently? Recently, I started playing the Marvel's Avengers video game again. I had started playing it when it came out in September, but once I finished the story mission, which is excellent, by the way, I kind of stopped playing, but then they released Kate Bishop content and I've been playing again. It's very like loot heavy. So you just do like missions and you go in and you like fight the bad guys and you get the loot and then you leave. But the story is really great. It centers Kamala Khan. It has very bitter exes, Bruce and Tony. And the Kate Bishop stuff is also really great. Ashley Birch, who voiced Aloy in Horizon Zero Dawn, is Kate Bishop. And they did a really good job with her design. Like, her default is jeans, combat boots, a purple jacket, and a bulletproof vest and sunglasses. And it's very Kate Bishop. I don't know if I would recommend paying full price for this game. But if you see it on sale, like, buy it for the campaign. The campaign is really, really good. Another thing I've been enjoying is the You're Wrong About podcast. It's hosted by two journalists, Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. And the premise of this podcast is that they re-examine things that our collective memory might have gotten wrong. So like a really good example is them going through the Challenger disaster and how, one, it's not actually an explosion despite what we remember. And two, how it's really a good example of white collar crime and the normalization of deviance. They did a four-part series on the DC Snipers and how people remember it as this terrorist incident, but it's really a good example of escalation of domestic violence. They'll talk about other more lighthearted things, like going through Jessica Simpson's biography and talking about how we as society, like the way we perceive attractive young women. I love the podcast. It's very good. 
I highly recommend it. They also, Michael Hobbs also has a podcast that he does with Audrey from Your Fat Friend on Twitter called Maintenance Phase, which is all about weird health and wellness things that are actually not good. So they they did one on like the presidential fitness test, which is the bane of American kids' existence. They did one just absolutely ripping to shreds The Biggest Loser. They did one on Halo Top ice cream. So the You're Wrong About Extended Universe is something that's been powering me through. And then in terms of what I'm reading, the Star Wars High Republic stuff that just came out is really good. It's set 200 years before the prequel trilogy. And it's just a very nice, like it's Star Wars, but it's aside from Yoda, it's all new characters. It's really interesting to see like how different the Jedi were even 200 years ago and just kind of seeing like how far they fell by the time we get to the prequel trilogy and how much more dogmatic and closed off they were to different perspectives. So I'm really enjoying it. I've read the first two books that were published and I'm hopefully getting the the, the YA book today. KJ, what about you? What have you been into? Like many of us, I think I haven't been reading that much during the pandemic. I've had a hard time focusing on it. But one thing that I did read was my first most anticipated book of the year came out in January. I pre-ordered it and started reading it uh, on release day and read it in like three days. It's The Mask of Mirrors by M.A. Carrick. M.A. Carrick is a pen name for, I think it's Alice, maybe it's Elise Helms, and Marie Brennan. And Marie Brennan is one of my very favorite authors. I have loved her work for a long time, uh, especially the memoirs of Lady Trent. And at BogCon last year, which is a small SSF con in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which might have been the last in-person con of 2020. It was the first weekend in March. And uh, if it had been a week later, I don't think they would have been able to do it. She read a chapter from this book uh, at FogCon, Marie Brennan did, and I was totally hooked. It's a secondary world fantasy. It's the story of a grifter who decides to pose as nobility to work, uh, work her way into a noble family and take their money. And uh, it's elaborate heists. It's lots of politics. It's got a couple of good romances in it. It's obviously the first book in a trilogy. And the Rose is the name of the trilogy. Um, and it's just really, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a great character building a really interesting looking world. And I'm excited to read more of it. So, and I, I definitely recommend, definitely recommend this book. Uh, in terms of what I've been watching, um, my partner and I, my spouse and I, uh, we finally bit the bullet to um, subscribe to HBO Max because we wanted to watch Wonder Woman. We have never had HBO before ever, so suddenly we have the whole world of HBO content open to us. So we started with Watchmen. First, we actually watched the movie because he had never seen it and he'd never read the graphic novel and we thought it would be useful background for it. And then we went to the series. Unfortunately, we haven't quite finished it yet, so I don't want to say too much, but it it's very good. It's not what I was expecting. And I don't want to say more than that. But what I've really been doing is I've been replaying Dragon Age Inquisition. Probably the last four months or so of 2020, I made the both terrible and wonderful decision of picking up Civilization VI. I was a Civ addict for a long time. I stopped playing some years ago uh, when I stopped playing PC games for RSI reasons. But then I found out that Civ was available for the PlayStation. I decided to get it and played it basically nonstop. I finally decided that the way to break this addiction was to get back into Dragon Age. I rolled up a new Inquisitor for the first time since, I think, 2016. 
I'm playing the Dalish Elf Origin. Uh, I'm romancing Dorian. Um, I'm enjoying it quite a lot, and I've already got my next game planned. And part of the reason I picked up uh, Dragon Age again is because for many, several years now, the canon which I am most drives me the most to write fiction based in it. So I was hoping that it would inspire me, and it has worked. I've gotten some irons in the fire, and hopefully some actual fiction will come of it soon. It's just been great to reimmerse myself in this world that I enjoy so much. I own Dragon Age. I own it. But I was really wigged out when Zach and I started the first game and there's no voice acting. It's weird. Like, I will say, as someone who played the trilogy backwards, (laughs) (laughs) it is very weird to go from fully voiced protagonists with the Inquisitor and with Hawk and then to go to Origins and have there be no voice. But Origins is very good. I really like all the different Origins. I think I've played all of them through, but I don't have a canon yet for Dalish Elf or Kuslin because I'm going to be honest, being a human noble seems very boring to me. (laughs) (laughs) One day, one day, friends. Well, I have not been playing games. However, I got a rec for a podcast from our mutual friend, and beautiful human Jenny from Reading the End called The Magnus Archives. It is a horror podcast. And the, like, the premise is that it's this institute that takes t- these spooky statements from people. And the, it's really disorganized. And so the head archivist, who is brand new, is reading them uh, in order to file them. You really have to just ignore the premise. Like, why are we recording written statements in the 21st century onto tape? So let that slide and then get into it and it becomes uh, more clear. It is really scary in some places. Other places, it's just kind of more introspective. I would call it existential, maybe. Like, it raises a lot of questions about humanity and power the last podcast like this that I really liked was the Black Tapes. And if you know me for any amount of time, you know how upset I got at the terrible ending of that show. Like, they just gave up. So I was really dubious about getting into another, like, audio horror podcast that might disappoint me. But so far, this one is doing really, really well. I really like it. I've inhaled it. I mean, I've been listening for about a week and a half now, and I'm on, like, episode 105. And the podcast actually kind of makes me want to go like look up some actually good horror books that might be available in audio. That might be where I go next. Who knows? Uh, the other thing that I've been very into are White House press briefings, which is a really big nerdy thing to say, I guess. But we didn't have White House press briefings because the last administration was a garbage fire and all they could do was lie. So they just quit having them. And I really like the ones that are happening now. It feels like, and we might be getting ahead of ourselves here, but the last Democratic administration didn't seem to know how to deal with the rising tide of conspiracy theorists and theories and bad faith journalists and journalists who just don't know how to handle fascism. It really feels like this administration learned a lot from watching how the previous Democratic administration got screwed and how the last administration behaved. So the press secretary, Jen Psaki, she previously was a spokesperson for the State Department. She just doesn't take their shit. And it's great. I admit that it's a press briefing. It's not super exciting, but I feel more 
informed by just listening to like a a, a forty five minute to whatever press briefing than just like trying to hunt up news from journalists. If I listen to the press briefing, I know what the news is going to be talking about. And it's just been a very chill way to like plug into politics in a way that doesn't feel like uh, my brain is going to leak out of my ears. It's been very enjoyable. <laughs> Highly recommend. The Magnus Archives has been on my radar for a little while. It, when you started describing it, I immediately thought of the black tapes. It's glad to hear that it's some of that same vibe, but better. Yes, it's much better. And also, I find that the voice acting of the side characters is better than in the black tapes. Jenny tells me that it's slow to start, but I actually didn't find it that slow to start. Maybe because I jammed 25 episodes into my face within 48 hours. That kind of probably has something to do with it. But it didn't feel like it was slow to start for me at all. So your mileage may vary, but I really, really love it a whole bunch. Whoever does the sound engineering, top-notch work. Chef's kiss. Okay, Space Bees, if you've been watching or reading or playing something that you think we might be interested in giving a shot, you can let us know by shooting us an email or poking us on Twitter. Rosemary and Rue is the first book in the October Day series by Shannon McGuire. It follows October's unwilling return to the world of fairy to investigate the murder of Evening Winter Rose. October Day is an urban fantasy series, and it was first published in 2009. And we are going to do a whole reread and discussion of the series together over the next few months, because there's a lot of books in this series. It's going to be full of spoilers. If you have not read the series, you will probably be spoiled because we're not going to like spoiler market. This is a very in-depth discussion, but we highly recommend you read these books because we think they are very good. I love these books. I first picked them up uh, when I graduated from college in 2012 and I was delivering pizzas and I needed something to do in my downtime. So I started reading a whole lot and I had picked up Rosemary and Rue because I was on an urban fantasy kick. I will say the first few books are slow, like it takes until the third book for it really to take off. But I thought the premise was really solid. Like I really enjoyed the idea that there's in San Francisco, there's fairy lurking everywhere, which makes sense because San Francisco and the Bay Area are like kind of like that. I thought Toby was a really interesting character because she does not want to be there. She is very depressed in this first book. It sets off like a lot of interesting mysteries that you don't even realize are happening at first. And so like for me, the big like one of the big ones, and I know KJ is going to talk about some of the other ones, but we meet the character Marsha where she's in Lily, who is an undine, and she is described as this very thin-blooded changeling so someone who doesn't have a lot of fairy in her but she shows up later i don't think marcia is actually a thin-blooded changeling i think she's mave i think marcia is mave or someone very powerful who's hiding because i don't buy that she is just a thin-blooded changeling and the other thing is too i don't buy stacy as a thin-blooded changeling because in this book and also in further books toby is very 
clear about like when she tastes someone's lineage and she's able to put it together. And we always get mentions of what someone's like fairy lineage is, but we never get that for Stacy. Like Stacy is just described as another thin blooded changeling. We never hear about who her parents are. We only hear about her grandparents and passing and two of her kids have these prophetic abilities that we've never really seen before. So I think there's also something hinky going on with Stacy, and we don't really see that in this book because Stacy and Mitch, aside from Mitch, Stacy mostly appears off camera. She's just someone mentioned as one of Toby's friends from before who now has a family, and like we'll get more of Stacy and Mitch later on. Anyway, Shauna McGuire does a very good job of like seeding potential things that grow later on. Yeah, this one was kind of hard for me to reread, though, because I forgot how much I deeply hate Devin. I hate him so much. My notes for this book are Devin is the fucking worst. And it's true. In a different series, Devin would have stayed around and been the, oh, he's the bad boy from Octo- from Toby's past and he's going to tempt her into criminal ways. So I do appreciate that he's one, shown to be the fucking worst towards the end. And then two, that he's dispatched. He's dead. He's not coming back, hopefully. <laughs> I enjoy this book. I think that it's definitely one of the weaker ones in the series, but it is also it was also Sean and McGuire's first published novels. I think it makes sense that it's not quite up to the same level as some of her other books. Just jumping right in there with the bombshells of, of your thoughts of what's going yeah. to come in next. So I picked up Rosemary and Rue when it was first published. Uh, I was in a bookstore for a different author event. The seller, the bookseller was like, oh, hey, here's a series and we have an author event for this book coming up later today. If you want to come back later and attend, I think it'd be, you know, it's, it's, she's a debut author. It'll be really fun. I'm like, oh, that sounds good, but I have other plans. Sorry, I bought the book and left. I regret that uh, greatly because, uh, among other things, I find Shauna McGuire to be one of the best live performers uh, in the business in terms of doing presentations and doing Q&A. I will watch any panel she is on. It doesn't matter what it's about. That was a mistake, but picking up the book was not a mistake. However, it sort of sat on my TBR for a while, and I didn't read it until a few years later. By the time uh, at least I think four books of the series were out. And so I read this book and then immediately went on to the next ones. So that makes my experience, I think, of getting into the series a little different. I will echo what Diana said about this not being among the stronger of her books, but it all feels very much like first novel issues. But the core of the story is very good and the characters are very fascinating. And it definitely set me up to want to know more about Toby and her world. I live in San Francisco, and um, I actually bought the book at Borderlands Books, which becomes a key setting later in the series. That's kind of a fun connection to it. And even if some of the geographical locations don't always link up, the San Francisco of the books feels like the San Francisco of the real world. And it gives you this idea that San Francisco could have, you know, it definitely feels like there could be fairy creatures lurking in the fog. That's a feeling really brought to life in the books. The seeds for later that I have been looking at is for things that have been revealed, um, and that's the true identity and motives of Evening Winter Rose. That's actually the main reason I wanted to reread the series, was to see how those plots are seeded and how well they hold up. I had forgotten just how much Evening was not set up as the villain in the beginning. That Evening was sympathetic, that Evening was seen, you know, Toby thought of her as a friend, as an ally. 
to know that that rug is going to be pulled out from under us in, I guess, eight books or so. And I, I was looking for clues to that. And there are a few, but it's subtle. It's one of those things that feels like a real surprise and a real reversal, but not like a cheat. I can see that definitely coming up. Another thing that struck me is just how much Toby's relationships with people have changed throughout the story. You know, T-Bald is the obvious uh, one to mention because they are not friends. And Toby thinks of him, in fact, as almost an enemy. Although the fact that she goes to him with the hope chest and trusts him with it is sort of telling. But then also, you know, the whole her whole relationship with Sylvester and how I had forgotten that she was afraid to go back to him and that she hadn't seen him um, in all that time that she'd been avoiding him. And for them to build their relationship back up to something so close and so important to her and to know that it's going to be destroyed again is very interesting and a little heartbreaking. You know, the first time I read this book, it was heartwarming to see her and Sylvester uh, reconnect. And now it's very bittersweet knowing what's going on behind the scenes. If I can just like add to that thing about the changing in relationships, it's also related to Sylvester, but the degradation of her relationship with Luna is also just so heartbreaking because like Luna in this book is portrayed as this alternate mother to her because, you know, Amadine is who she is and was not a good mother. And Luna provided that source of comfort and then just to over the course of the series to see that degrade to where we get in a killing frost where Luna effectively banishes her from shadowed Hills. I haven't reread this series in a while, so I can't remember like the specific steps that got us to that point, but it's still just very sad to see how that relationship changes. And then going with Tibble and the, how the seeds of that attraction were planted. The edition that I have has it's the 10th anniversary edition and it has, uh, all new novella that's about how Toby finds the queen's no after it collapses. And at one point in the novella, after she's had a couple of encounters with Tybalt, she's has this glass ball that's helping her find the snow. And she's thinking about Labyrinth and the Goblin King. And she's basically thinking about how much she likes tight pants. <laughs> And I'm just like, oh, girl, even in 1992, you got it bad and you are trying to deny it so much. Unlike uh, everybody else, I didn't start reading the series until a lot of the books were out. So I don't have the same experience of a lot of the earlier books that are weaker than the later books, just writing style wise. Going back to this book, it has been really weird. I actually forgot a lot of the things that happened in this book. So it was kind of like reading it for the first time. And there's a lot of stuff I don't remember. I totally forgot about Connor completely. <laughs> completely erased that man from my memory. In this book, you can see both the setup for Toby and Tybalt's relationship. But you can also see the setup for... Toby and Connor getting back together. I remember when I was first reading the series and I would go, was it you, KJ? Because I'm pretty sure I came to you several times about Connor and Toby and whether or not they were going to be your thing or whether Toby and Tybalt were going to be a thing. Because I had a preference, a very loud preference for Tybalt. And you were just like, keep reading. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yes. I think I do remember that. Yeah, I was very biased. The first scene where... Tybalt rescues Toby when she's been shot by a, a potential assassin and takes her to her friend Lily for, for healing. I'm like, oh my god, I shipped this so much. 
I was very all in on that relationship from the beginning and totally forgot about Connor. So sorry, Connor. I mean, to be fair, I think a lot of us forgot about Connor. <laughs> I didn't forget about Connor. I think Toby and Tivold is a better end game ship. But, I, you know, I thought Connor was as a way for Toby back into fairy. I thought that he worked as she's sort of rediscovering the world. I think for me, the reason I forgot about him was because, like I said, I started reading in 2012. I read the first five books pretty close together. The first one I read, like, as it came out was One Salt Sea, the one where Connor dies. And so it's been, like, nine years for me at this point. So I'm just like, Connor? Who's the... Oh, I remember now. (laughs) Yeah, the downsides of reading uh, a series where there's uh, several books out, like like, more than three... And you just sort of mainline them all. You're like, whoa, what happened back in those previous books? Uh, another character, I just forgot that the the Lushak was in this specific book in the way that she is. Especially given the importance of her character in later books. Because obviously the books plant a lot of hints about uh, her story throughout the, the series. And I don't think we've seen the end of those for example, one of the one of the hints that gets dropped in this book was the poor red shirt Rowan dude who ends up who is dating one of Toby's childhood friends gets capped. Toby makes this comment, "Oh well, he he's a Rowan and they're almost extinct." That's another I guess example of the way that Shane McGuire is sort of seeding this world with like potential story beats. The Rowan are play a big big role in. A little bit in book five, but then especially in book 13. But yeah, dropping a hint for something that isn't going to become a big deal for 13 books is really quite something. There was one other thing that, oh, the hint about the queen. So in this book, we find out, one, the queen has no name. Two, she has three different lineages of fairy where where mostly people only have one or two. And then three, that she's something is not quite right with her. She only plays a very small role in this, but you can see like in this book that that's going to be something that is going to be coming up because she rules the mist. But what happens when there's something wrong with the ruler? Yeah, that becomes a pretty big deal pretty quickly, if I recall the whole changeover of power. Um, I can re- I can never remember what happened exactly in which book. Um, the only thing that I have in my head is that book eight is when the truth about the winter rose is revealed. It's book seven where the truth about the nameless queen comes out and okay. we get the change of power because it happens the book after Toby and Tybalt hook up. Ah, okay. Yes, this whole, this whole series will be us uh, marking time by... Uh, Toby and Tibble's interactions and how close they are to Bagan. But Diana, what you said about Devin, it made me sort of made me think about how, you know, a different book series would have handled him. And it also made me think of Sianan's strong statement about how her female protagonist will never be sexually assaulted. It seems like those kinds of things kind of go together, that by getting rid of the creepy male predator who is clearly not not just women, but, you know, the weak the the changelings is preying on the changelings for his own gain that she got rid of him and brought in different kinds of villains um Mm -hmm. different kinds of antagonists i think that's sort of telling yeah i agree and then the other thing that i find very interesting with this book was i've been seeing and 
when I was reading a lot of urban fantasy, a lot of urban fantasy has the protagonist like working with law enforcement in some way. And with this one, like Toby is working with like fairy authority, like she has to in order to operate within fairy, but she's not really working with mortal authorities. She's a, you know, she is a private investigator. And so there are some interactions with police, but we always see it kind of sidestepping. I just thought that was interesting given recent discussions about use of law enforcement in fiction. In the first book, Toby makes a comment about the police as a toxic body. And it's very explicit. And I thought that was very not cool to read in a book from 2009, but like prescient maybe that the idea of the police as heroes was not being endorsed by the narrative. They were, at least from the main character's perspective, they were like extremely troubling to deal with and it just wasn't worth it. Well, also with authority, the fact that the ultimate authority in this part of the world is the queen and she's, you know, revealed to be a corrupt usurper also feels somewhat connected to that. And even Sylvester turns out to have his serious problems. It's definitely interesting going back and visiting something, like I said, that I haven't read in nine years. Yeah, I've always meant to reread this series, but never have. I have forgotten so much (laughs) that happens in the earlier books. I didn't forget Connor. I forgot Devin. Devin is the character I completely forgot about. Speaking of things being seated, I just remember. uh, So in the prologue, because I was, flipping through a killing frost recently where simon turns her into a fish i'm just gonna read it because i have it open uh oleander laughed oh she's a sassy one her expression darkened moon shifting in a heartbeat make her pay for that of course leaning forward simon pressed a kiss against my forehead and whispered i'll make sure someone finds your car in a week or two once they're ready to give up hope wouldn't want to make your family wait for you too long now would i And as we find out in later books where Simon turned her into a fish as a way of protecting her, it's like, I'm, I read that. I'm like, oh my God, like that was like, I'm pretty sure that was something that she had in mind since the revelations about Simon and his relationship to Toby was something she had planned really far in advance. At the first author event I went to for this series, which was probably book six or seven I actually asked her how far ahead she had plotted. And she said at the time she'd sold 13 books, but she had more. She knew where the story was going even beyond that. So I think a lot of this stuff, many of this, much of this stuff was planned in advance. I don't know how in detail, but definitely I think she has the broad outlines of the story in mind. Some of my favorite things from this book, rereading it, were stuff that I Hadn't like forgotten specifically, but I enjoyed the viewing of it through eyes that know what's coming. For example, in this book, Toby adopts a rose goblin called Spike. I guess I just totally forgot that she got Spike this early in the series in the first book. Also, there was the fact that her squire, who becomes her squire later, is introduced in this book as well. And the way that she interacts with him versus the way that she interacts with, like, older members of the fairy court is really fascinating. Also, a little heartwarming as well. Because she's like, oh, well, he hasn't been corrupted by, like, all this snobbery yet. So she still, like, relates to him. And I found that super delightful, especially since we know 
how that relationship is going to grow and change in the future. Yeah, it was Quentin for me too. When she when Quentin first shows up on her doorstep and I was like, Oh, the relationship the two of you have in front of you just makes me happy to think about it. I love that one of Toby's defining characteristics is her randomly adopting all the teenagers she encounters. Like Mm -hmm. we have Quentin, we have Raj, we have Chelsea, we have Dean. I think based on Killing Frost, Racel is going to like end up among her like brood. It was also a little sad that so far Jilly's like the one person who is not there. I totally forgot how upset I was because I wasn't expecting it right when I first read this book where Toby is following Simon and gets turned into a face for 14 years. This 14 year gap where she loses everything was just super gutting to me. Earlier, Diana said that Toby is extremely depressed and it comes through really well in the way that she just has so little care for her physical, like both her physical and mental health. It's not that she is subservient. It's more that she feels resigned to being tossed around by the tides of the fairy court. And she's just given herself over to it because her mental health is so bad. In a lot of ways, this book was pretty gutting. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, even though sometimes things get objectively worse for Toby, I feel like overall her situation is getting better because she has her community back, Mm -hmm. basically. She might not have wanted the fairy community, but as she finds her way back in on her own terms, I think it helps her and makes her life and her mental health better. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because we see like throughout the books, the people that who are close to her every time like she starts kind of backsliding, they like are like, no, we love you. We care for you. You have value besides, you know, being Abedin's daughter and being a living hope chest. Oh, that's the other thing I I want to talk about was the hope chest. Just again, it's a little bit of foreshadowing into like what the deal with Toby where it's this idea and also like some of the other characters where hope chests can turn changelings either full human or full fairy and like Toby gets a little of that where she touches it and it does like some subtle tweaks to her but it doesn't like fully change who she is then as we find out later that's like Amadine's line's whole thing and also, as we find out with uh, Simon and Sylvester, they were uh, changelings once upon a time. Right. There's a lot more of this secret changeling thing that becomes much more of a big deal as the story goes on. And the perspective that Toby has to the fairy is that like all these so-called purebloods or whatever are lording it over people like her, which I find fascinating as we watch her grow over the books into not being so ashamed of her lineage because she's like made herself her into her own person and she's developed her own skills and she's done it on her own terms. The farther along we go, the more like sarcastic she gets about them. She will give them respect when they earn it. But otherwise, as she grows as a person, she's just like, you're full of shit. And I really enjoy that aspect of her character. I do too. And I think kind of related to that, where you're saying that she becomes more, more confident, where 
So in this book, she's like tempted by the hope chest. And that's why she's like, Tibble, you need to keep it away from me. Like I cannot have it near me. Whereas in later books, whenever she has the opportunity to change her blood or interacts with the hope chest, she's like, keep me as I am. Like I, like I want to keep my humanity. I don't want to let that go. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about Amadine. It's, it's interesting how, you know, in this book, she's just sort of portrayed as the flighty fairy princess who hasn't been a part of Toby's life. It's funny, when she talks about her mom in this book, she doesn't think of her as being particularly bad or toxic. And it gets to be more and more so uh, mm-hmm. as the series goes on until our most recent book, where is it? I think it's the most recent book where she got banished, right? Um, she's not banished but she and simon get divorced and she throws a fit so she's not banished but she has definitely fallen from favor amadine is was an interesting character for me going into this book because even when i read this book for the first time and subsequent books some of the ways that toby talks about herself in the context of her mother really raised some red flags for me so like in this book for example when a fairy and mortal are together and have a child like toby at some point, the child, their baby magic runs out, so they have to face the changeling's choice and choose whether to stay in the mortal world or go or uh, go to the fairylands. When Sylvester shows up for October and asks her, and she's like, "I'm just like, I'm just like my mother." So Sylvester pulls both October and Amadine back into the Summerlands. In that moment, Toby she blames it on herself, like she blames herself for that choice and for like trapping her mother in fairy just the way that she framed that like as if it was her fault as a little kid so even back when i was first reading the series i'm like i i don't know if i i do not trust this woman obviously parents are like quote unquote human and they care about their kids so if you're a parent and you care about your child you don't let them internalize this idea that they were at fault for something that they weren't at fault for and so that's why i was always always suspicious of amadine always Yeah, it's a good catch. Do we have any closing thoughts about the first book? That one's the fucking worst, and I'm glad he's dead. It's the seeds of what's going to come later, and I'm pretty excited for it. Uh, Although I'm not excited for the next book because it's my least favorite by a lot. But we'll talk about that next month. The next book has some good stuff in terms of we get more Toby Quentin bonding, but the plot is not great. Uh, Next month, everybody, you can enjoy me being the odd one out as I do like the next book. (laughs) Maybe rereading it, I'll like it better. Yeah, and again, I don't think I've read some of the early books in nine, like I said, in nine years, so... How many Space Bees would you guys give Rosemary and Rue? Out of five, I would say 3.5 Space Bees. Solid book, solid beginning. It's not top-tier Toby Day for me. The convention is three Space Bees in a jar of honey, right? That's kind of where I am, too. Both because it's a solid book on its own and because of all the work it does to set up all the great things to come later. On this book, after rereading it, I'm at a four. Even though it's a very much a first novel, the way that it like aligns its story beats in order to anchor the rest of the series later on, it's just really, really good. Before we wrap up, I just want to mention in the 10th anniversary edition, there is a pull quote from The Book Smugglers. When it's listing like all the praise that this book or series has gotten, they include The Book Smugglers, which makes me happy. Space Bees, thank you very much for listening to our show. Diana, where can our listeners find you online? You can mostly find me on Twitter at BookishDie, where I talk politics, Star Wars, and women's sports. KJ, where can people find you? 
I have two primary homes on the internet. The first is on Twitter. Uh, I am KJ, and I too talk about politics and science fiction and post pictures of my cat and the city. Um, and then I also uh, write on Dreamwidth as Owl Moose, and you can find me on Lady Business, where I'm one of the contributing editors. Hooray! Thank you both so much for coming on the pod to talk about the books with me. I really appreciate your time, and I'm excited for us to continue our uh, October Day reread next month. Speaking of that, my cats are currently wailing outside because I have the door closed and they're just like, mother does not love us. Mother keeps us unjustly shut from this chamber. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear that. (laughs) They're so sad, Diana. They're so sad. Oh my god, those cats. <laughs> okay, well we have one we have one outro to do and then we're done. We can and you can and you can free and you can free them from their torments. <laughs>